0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Photographer's Coffee Morning. My name's Tom Wright. I am the host of this podcast. And that kind of neatly brings us onto the topic for today. A lot of you don't know who I am. I kind of realized recently. So what we've decided to do today was talk a little bit to my business coach, Joe McCarthy, amazing, amazing business coach, somebody who's essentially helped me to organize this podcast right from the beginning, queue up guests, make sure that I'm keeping on top of things and stay to release schedule. But the main reason she's here is because basically, I don't know what you might want to know. So she's going to ask me some questions. And we're going to talk a little bit about me, which feels incredibly uncomfortable. With all that said, and with all the stalling out of the way, Joe, did you want to say hi and let everybody know a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: I am Jo McCarthy. I work with Tom as a business coach. And today, we're turning the tables. We've worked together, like I said, for a couple of years. We, I think we first encountered each other during the pandemic. I think we had friends in common. And we got together on Zoom for creative chats. You were enjoying the clubhouse vibe of conversation, collaboration, reaching the audiences. Is that what you remember? Is that how we met?
0: Pretty much think that my wife's sister had been following you for ages. Because, like, for those that don't know, like, Joe, she's a business coach primarily for artists, but she started out doing stuff for shops and she had her own shop that sold a lot of the magazines that I was looking at for inspiration at the time. I'd moved into commercial photography. And I was trying to get an idea of what direction I wanted to go in, what kind of work I wanted to pursue. And she was stocking a lot of these independent magazines that have got the really high quality photography in them. So I was trying to f- find these publications, couldn't find them anywhere. And then coincidentally started following Joe's shop. It was called Vereen. And basically like that was a source of inspiration, met you through that. And then a little while afterwards, I think you'd move from being a store owner to coaching people that were looking to try and break in and like get into these publications and try and help artists that were trying to reach out to do similar creative work. Um, so for me, it was a bit of a no brainer really, because there was a personal connection, but you were also already somebody that I saw as being visually educated and having taste, which is not something that's easy to come by in a business coach. So that was why I wanted to work with you in the first place.
1: Yeah, you've got a better memory than I do. It's true. I had a shop and uh, I switched sides and now mentor people who sell online. So in our work together, Tom, we've, we have covered so many different <laughs> aspects of running a business. And believe me when I say I learn as much from you as you do from me. So can I ask why the relationship of having someone like me in your business has worked for you so far? I think generally anybody can benefit
0: from having you in the business, Joe. You're like, you're really capable, but. For me, it's because I'm neurodivergent. Basically, I'm dyspraxic, which is a developmental coordination disorder. It used to be called clumsy child syndrome. And basically, it affects a few things like it affects my motor coordination and a lot of kind of depth perception, the way I relate to the world. You can get sensory overload. But my RE teacher at school described it best. He said it's like my brain works faster than the rest of my body. If signals are coming in, my brain doesn't always know how to sort them out. And when I'm trying to relay information, I don't always do it in a logical order. And obviously, over time, you get coping strategies. Like I don't think many of you would have noticed just listening to me that I had any kind of neurodiversity issue. But the way that it presents for me is lack of organizational skills. So when I built Workflow, which is the main course that I sell and teach other people, it was because I knew that there was a very good chance if my systems didn't take care of things for me, I didn't build a logical process, things would get lost. So now my photography workflow can be taken care of in like literally just a few clicks and then it's done. And that's enough that I can get through that process really efficiently and easily. But areas where I couldn't really do that is where you have to be creative in business and try and think about how do you manage a calendar? How do you make sure that you meet any your kind of deadlines? like How do you arrange the rest of life so it fits around work without it becomes stressful the way that i was dealing with it previously was just essentially single tasking all the time like i was only ever really concentrating on one thing and that meant that i'd have to have blinders on and things weren't improving as quickly as they should be because i was too focused on making sure that the craft was right or making sure that my edit was perfect and i think that Working with you has taught me a lot about how I am as a person, and that's very focused, but it's also shown me the value of having somebody on the outside, showing you when it's time to move on, when it's time to call something good, and when you might be following the wrong direction, or sometimes just to listen to your gut a little bit more. All those things have been huge for me.
1: Yeah, and that exploration is where a lot of the fun happens, isn't it? What I've appreciated learning more about your neurodivergence, Tom, is the way that we are able to shape your business so that it's joyful and so that you are not burdened by some of these necessary but laborious tasks in your business. It's true that for many people, tracking a diary, meeting appointments, all of that kind of admin stuff of running a business, it's not the most fun thing. But I think where we've really enjoyed working together is looking at your strengths. And you mentioned that word craft. How does your craft influence the way that you even run your business, do you think, Tom?
0: It's everything. For me, the reason why workflow exists is because I want other people to think carefully about the way that they enjoy working, about the way that their clients enjoy seeing things and building something that can be efficient enough that it doesn't have to be a burden without giving away some of that kind of handmade element of their work. Photographers very often end up doing things because it's what the industry does. And that's not the same as craft. That That's like following a process, like a franchise model to your photography. And I think part of what I love to see in my business and other people's is an embracing of intent. I want people to be branding their photography. I want people to be crafting a look and building a product that is unique that it feels handmade and bespoke it's not just one off the peg you've not gone off and bought the camera that everyone buys bought the presets that everyone buys and use the ai software that everyone uses to edit with it because if you do the same thing as other people i would argue that isn't really craft that's the me too offering and that's not to say there's not prevailing wisdom and some of these things aren't correct but if you're making those choices, you can tell a mile off when somebody's thought about it carefully, and when somebody has done it by mistake, by happenstance. And I think that understanding those things and taking like a designful approach to the way that you do things, it is ultimately why I wanted to offer education in the first place. Like I'm a huge proponent for people spending creative energy to build a system and then working within that system. But if you don't spend that creative energy, if you don't craft your kind of process, your workflow, your approach, your style, the product that you make suffers. And some customers don't have the education to understand what's wrong. But I think especially now, a lot of people just intuitively understand when something isn't quite right. Like we've all picked up a pot you've bought from like some homeware store that looks like it's handmade, but isn't and then held up a pot that somebody's actually thrown by hand and you can feel the difference. Like one of those two objects feels like it's been made by a robot and it's perfect. The other one, you can feel the shape of the person's hand that made it now that can make you like that product more or less. Like maybe that person's hands are too small and it doesn't feel comfortable. But when you keep looking, if you do put the extra effort in, you can find something that isn't only unique, but it feels unique and uniquely suited to your needs. And I think that as photographers, when we make choices to be a craftsman and not just kind of like somebody that takes pictures, we're giving ourselves opportunity to be that for our clients.
1: Yeah, I love that. It, it's a kind of elevation of the work, isn't it? But actually by going inwards, by going down. I heard recently somebody say, if you're looking in the same places as everyone else, you'll produce the same work as everyone else. And it's such a cliche. In this culture of particularly absorbing so much online, that we know that happens. There's a dilution of that craft, isn't there? Where do you go for inspiration, Tom, to try and avoid that kind of homogeny?
0: Lately, it's been doing this. Like The podcast has been it's been a way of me having a deeper conversation with the artists that I respect. So over over time I've met people um, in this industry and otherwise like largely through clubhouse as well. Like when that was a thing, like for anybody that doesn't really know what it is, it was basically live podcasting and every photographer in the world was suddenly locked in the house and nobody had anything to do. So at that point, I think I was spending between one and four hours a day hosting conversations with other photographers and it's amazing how quickly you realize the artists that that really care about the craft, not always the ones that know how to speak, in fairness, because that, that, it's a different skill set. But there's something about the way that people like that think. The podcast a couple of weeks ago, we had Ben's story on, and he's at the time he was 20. And you could tell from the way that he was talking that he had something. And I think if anybody hasn't listened to that podcast episode, you should go back and listen again, because he's not a practice speaker. He is a tasteful and dedicated photographer. And I think that conversation for me was one of my favorites because it meant that I got to understand a little bit about what this person that isn't in the practice of speaking, isn't an educator, but just is visually educated. Another element is being intentional about when you find something, keeping hold of it. Like Instagram is no longer in the habit of showing you the stuff that you like twice. It will show you the lowest common denominator every single time. It'll try and shock you. It'll try and keep your eyes on something just because it thinks you're going to watch it. It'll be like gimmicky videos. If you eventually do get served something that you think is good, treat it like panning for gold. You've got a responsibility to keep hold of that and try and go back to it and try and encourage those artists that have inspired you. For me, like I keep things safe that Instagram. I go to people's websites, I try and find a way of getting in contact with them directly and telling them (laughs) that I've enjoyed their work because I tend to find that understanding the relationship between people helps me to appreciate it more. But largely it's publications as well. So if you come offline, I still buy a ridiculous amount of books and magazines. And I think that it's interesting the way that a lot of modern publications seem to be a way of presenting commercial products in an artful way. So if you are reaching out to a magazine to submit your work, very often the editor there is trying to make a taste-based decision as to whether or not your product aligns with their vision for what their audience want to see. So there's an element of curation going on there as well. I wish there was more intentionally curated space online that was easily accessible and repeatable, but right now there isn't. So in the absence of that, magazines and then trying to build relationships on the occasions where I do find somebody that I think is inspiring.
1: I think that's, for me, something that's distinctive about you actually telling the way that you quite quickly talk to people. In the online space, it's tempting to be that wallflower to some extent. I'm all different. I'm quite introverted. I don't necessarily want to be chatting to everybody all the time. In the past, I had my Instagram bio, where it was conversations over content. And the idea is that yeah, we're saturated, aren't we? Overly saturated. And you've mentioned some really interesting words, craft, taste, looking deeper, going deeper, and actually talking to people, having conversations, even with image makers. So it's not necessarily their most comfortable medium of expression, but it that's that is something that's really important to you, isn't it? And that's why this podcast has been so good, but also the way that we're structuring your business is actually... Very quickly, we're getting people onto calls with you, chat in person, over Zoom, whichever, to really determine how you can support them in their business. Do you find, Tom, that what's happening is you're curating? You mentioned that word. Do you feel like you're, you're curating the, the sort of people around you? Is that like a conscious choice?
0: Not really, if I'm being honest. I, I like the fact that I'm open. And if somebody wants access to me, I'm literally just a message away. But the thing you mentioned about being accessible and wanting to talk to people quickly, I think largely that becomes from a place of not wanting to waste somebody's time. If I can genuinely help somebody, then we can move forward. But it means that before you make any kind of investment, before anything, we find out whether we're a good fit and you actually want to hear from me and hear what I've got to say. But it also means that if we examine the way you are working and it's already as good as it can get, then we don't have to work together. And I can tell you directly why I love your work and we can move on. And I honestly have done that in the past. There have been times where people have come to me and asked me for help with workflow or with color correction. And I've told them directly, like your color is already an accurate reflection of you. It's already differentiated from the market. It's already, it's doing what it needs to do because you've been intentional about the way that you've built this and it's working. And nine times out of 10, That isn't the case because if somebody's contacting me, it's because they feel that something's missing or there's some structural changes to make. But those conversations do happen and should happen because I don't believe that education should be something that is sold to you in a one-size-fits-all kind of approach because, frankly, like I don't think we all come from the same starting point. I don't think we've got the same inspiration or the same struggles. And if you approach education the way that like school did, I think that leaves an awful lot of creators behind. So when you build an education offering around somebody else's business, it, it tends to work better because it's not for everybody. It's just for you. And I know that it's what I needed. Like, I needed this as a kid. Like, I wish that there had been more teachers that had helped me with that because like being neurodivergent now is very different to how it was when I was a kid. I didn't get diagnosed until I was 18. So that by the time I got through my school career, they realized that I've been struggling for my entire school career. Which is, I think it's an experience shared by a lot of people in my age group. And honestly, I've mentioned this before on Instagram, but Snap Photo Festival did a poll to work out roughly how much of their audience was neurodivergent. And I think something crazy, like 60 odd percent of the kind of polled people had said they were neurodivergent by some way, shape, or form, which means that over half of the people in that audience had the same kind of issues that I do, which means that they can't be treated. In the same way, they need equity and not equality. They need to be treated to bring everybody to the same level and to make sure that they get the learning the way that's appropriate for them. So the reason why I speak to people first is because I want to have those like conversations and get a feel for how somebody understands something. And then we build the educational offering around you. And we've struggled a little bit making a website for it, not because like I, I don't think it's great, but it's hard to standardize what you're going to get because in the end, the only real constant is you're getting me for eight, eight hours over two sessions and everything else inside of it is going to be down to your business. If you need me to go through the structure of Lightroom, we'll do that. If you need me to work on inspiration and we need to look at like how to develop your gut reaction to photography, we can work on that. If you need help understanding how to get a certain color in your shadows, we can work on that. But the fact is that for a lot of people, we assume that everyone has the same level of knowledge and that just has not been the case. Some of the most accomplished photographers I've ever met have the best trained gut, but didn't necessarily know how to do the technical side of it intuitively and that had to be learned. And equally, there are photographers that are technically incredible that need help to discover their voice and to clarify things a little bit more. And over time, I that's the only way to accurately convey that information is to speak to people and it's a messy process but it's an enjoyable one and there's lots of structure there we're going to get you to a place where everything feels like it fits perfectly but prescribing that process hasn't been possible and as a result the sooner we speak to people the sooner we can kind of get that across like your messy process is valid we can clean it up a little bit to make it more efficient but we still want it to feel like you. My, my aim isn't to make a million people that all have the Tom W look. Like, that's not the point. And actually, part of the reason why I don't spotlight the work of the people that I work with is because it isn't me, it's them. That Their achievements are their own. I shouldn't be taking credit for that. And any work that we do together is for the benefit of them and them alone. It's not for me. If you're looking for me to do, like, case studies... I'm not sure that I'm there yet. And as a result, like I said, the only way that I know how to explain to somebody the value in this is by having a conversation with them and talking specifically to them about how we can help and how I can help them to refine their voice, refine the process, or even just feel more confident that they're going in the correct direction and to double down and keep following that direction.
1: And this focus on dignifying the other person is refreshing, isn't it? Meeting somebody where they're at, again, it's another cliche, but my goodness, is that a skill? And it's something that takes time to learn how to do. I think you're instinctively pretty good at it. And then to shape a business around that and to push away certain conventions, sales funnels, email sequences which in themselves aren't wrong but are they work right for your business Tom and it's this editing this curating this sorting out really and picking and choosing it takes confidence to do that doesn't it how have you grown in confidence Tom over the years of running your business
0: <laughs> I'm not sure I am confident <laughs> if I'm being completely honest this conversation is a prime example of that like it feels weird kind of Talking about me. But if you're talking about confidence in my ability, I think that's just come from constant exposure to other people. And the best advice I ever got was essentially you don't know what somebody else is thinking. You told me this, Joe, so that you can take full responsibility. You did, said, don't do other people's thinking for them. Because, and that's true, I don't know what other people think of me. And to be frank, I can't know. So the only responsibility I've got is to be helpful. And if I am helpful, in general, if I am if I go out with the intention to help somebody, somebody else can decide whether it's relevant or not. And if it's not, then great. I'll just keep being helpful and maybe something in the future will be. A big part of gaining confidence is learning to think less of yourself because it doesn't matter about me. Like I'm not the important bit. Everybody sees themselves as the hero in their own story. And if you treat other people like they are the hero, then pe- people tend to like that. And that doesn't require anything from me. Nothing at all. All I've got to do is look at them, try and understand where they've come from, where they're going and what dragon they've got to slay and then walk through the process with them and try and be helpful. So I don't think I'm confident. I just think I'm getting better at being helpful without getting in the way
1: and confidence comes from being rooted often doesn't it rooted and anchored to mix my metaphors you know to something and i think that's what you've worked really hard on over the years is understanding the values that are really important to you and that sort of permeates everything you do from what i see where perhaps there are wobbles where maybe on occasion there are other voices that are quite loud in the industry and of course, in every industry, we have this where they resonate in our ears and we just think, oh, I'm I? shall I stick to my gun? Shall I bed down ever more? Or do I need to change and pivot and all of that kind of stuff? And it really depends on how we want to view that. You know, We can have fun actually in that, like we mentioned earlier, that kind of exploration stage, picking and choosing and playing with ideas you can actually be so creative. But if you're constantly in a state like that it might affect the output of your business at some point some structure usually is needed where you're saying okay this is what i do this is who it's for this is how you can get it and this idea of being helpful again is it really shows in everything you do i know that for example you have a lot of conversations in your dms on instagram we used to call you the helpful nerd that kind of thing and it's it, for example you do your youtube channel tom right so on that channel sharing much more techie stuff is that right Some of it goes over my head, if I'm honest but what's the <laughs> where do you find joy in doing that kind of
0: started DMing somebody because he'd asked me a question about a camera I just bought. so I recorded like a little clip that I'd recorded for myself to test it out. And he said, "Right, you need to share this now because this guy is on YouTube. Like, if you want to, if you want to check him out, it's Harris Ahmed. H V R I S, I think, is the way best way to find him on YouTube. I'll, like, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's probably easier that way." He basically said, I well, need to share this." So I did, and I put it on YouTube. It got fifteen thousand views. I, I don't know, but it wasn't because I was trying to get fifteen thousand views. It's because I, somebody was asking me for information that I'd got for myself, and I, I shared it with them, and they were kind enough. <laughs> to push me in the direction of sharing it more because this has been a constant issue for me. I'm not very good at self-promotion. Part of the reason why I love doing the podcast is because I get to speak to the people and kind of try and elevate somebody else instead because I find that a lot easier. Like it's a lot easier to find the benefit in them. But the reason I've kept it up is because I hadn't realized how many people found it useful. And there were some odd comments on there. I literally had somebody tell me that if I had a better face, the camera's autofocus would have been better which I can't really argue with. The worst thing was that the guy's username was Chuck Norris. I can't argue with him. I'd get my ass kicked. But by and large, the comments were overwhelmingly positive and they were asking me for information on how this camera worked for stills. So I went through, made that video and uploaded that too. And that's done even better. I don't know. Like, I don't know if I've got like a YouTube channel. When I actually did share more helpful information, weirdly, like I literally showed somebody how to color grade footage exactly like I do for commercial projects and barely anybody's seen that video. And I feel like half the time, the problem is context. So I enjoy doing the YouTube thing, but I really don't like the fact that when you actually do provide high quality information, it's like pearls before swine. Not to say that people on YouTube are swine because I'm, I spend my entire life on YouTube. I love it as a consumption platform, but the context is wrong. So you give somebody gold and they don't understand its value because it was free and it was not hard earned. But really, the only reason you can give it away is because it's a mass Publication tool, you can help a lot of people at once. So, in an ideal world, there would be a way of getting every single person to watch that video and fully understand it, because then I wouldn't need to worry about it. People would know that and it'd never be a problem again. But this kind of comes down to one of my big bugbears about online education in general. If you want to learn for free, you can do it. There's infinite information online, and all you've got to do is filter it against what you understand already. And that is not a small thing. So you end up not only spending the time watching the thing, but then trying to decide whether or not the information is worthwhile and fits with your established business and practices. So when I'm looking at YouTube, in the back of my mind now is that statistic that 93% of online education doesn't get completed. And when I look at things like watch time, and I see that somebody will watch a video that's 10 minutes long, for three minutes, and then make a comment asking why I haven't covered something that's covered later in the video. It's a reminder that Instagram is not an educational platform. It's not built for it. It's built for edutainment, like the kind of like light education that's still entertaining. That's the stuff that performs really well in the tech space, and I need to remember that because if I if my goal is to help somebody on a deep level, YouTube is never going to be that. And I shouldn't try and make it that. So I've been playing with it this year to find out what works. And obviously this podcast is also available on YouTube. We've made it a podcast playlist so you can listen through. And I tend to find that I like watching podcasts on YouTube while I'm editing, if I'm doing stills. You can have it on the second screen, just dip in and out. It's nice. I guess initially my my, my hope was that it was going to be a strong educational platform where I could help a lot of people quickly. But it's turned out that's not been the case because people don't watch it for that reason. And as a result, I'm kind of putting things there as well, trying to take a broader approach to how I share the free education that we put out.
1: Again, it goes back to this idea of kind of meeting people where they're at. We we consume content in different ways, don't we? It's interesting when we went to the bookshop in Manchester the other day together, and I was watching people being drawn to different things in the space and uh, I hadn't noticed that they were selling coffee, for example, but you went straight to the coffee inhaling all these amazing aromas. And it was that experience, is that experience in that sort of context of, of where you were that then you wandered around and looked at the books and you absorbed your environment like that. Something I noticed with you, Tom, when you very kindly did my brand photography was there's a simplicity to your approach. So do you remember I picked you up in my car? And I'd said to my husband, Ben, I need to clear the back seat. Tom's going to have laser bags. Will a tripod fit? All this kind of stuff. And then you came off the train with this very cool rucksack and a camera. And I just couldn't believe it. So where does this desire for stripping back and keeping things simple in your own approach come from? For
0: me, it's been a refinement over a long time. Like a I haven't always only carried a b- like one camera and one lens and like a small bag like very often I've got I've taken more like I've taken lighting equipment I've worked in commercial studios I've done headshots like I've, if there's a kind of photography that you can do I've done it if there's a technical skill you would need for it by and large I've done it unless it's landscape because I'm terrible at landscape photography just fair warning but that's It's the reason I stripped it all back was I was realizing at a certain point that it gives you decision paralysis. If you're in a mode of experimentation and you pick something up to see what it does, that's very different to being able to execute with it on a high level. And I think that the more that you add into your kit bag, the more distracted that it makes you. And I'm saying you, but I really mean me. It makes me distracted. Because I've found other people that really do love having like a Swiss army knife. So when they open their bag, there's a tool for every occasion. And my problem is that the way that I enjoy creativity is with constraints. And the tech person in me understands the correct solution to every problem. And then the craftsman in me needs to understand whether or not it fits my process. So before we ever meet a client, there's a whole lot of carting around like a massive camera on family trips or going out and doing test shoots with people to try and make sure they understand how a piece of kit works. And then the evaluation isn't, is this good or bad? It's how does it inform the eventual work? And actually, since we did that shoot for you, things have changed again. Like I'm carrying a little bit more equipment, but I'm doing more with it. So now when I turn up on shoots, I normally have, Two cameras that are like for video and fast action. And, but the main camera I'm using is super slow, doesn't have autofocus particularly, can't really do much aside from be pointed at somebody and take a photograph. But the way that it produces images and the way that it renders feels about as close as I found to something that is organic. And as a result, I don't mind carrying just that. But there's also a downside in that I know that isn't appropriate for every job, which is why I have the other two cameras with me. So at the moment, I'm in a phase of bringing a little bit more kit. Like I've got, like I said, three cameras because there's two, two of the fast cameras and the one that I'm using primarily. But the reason for that is so that I know that I'm not letting a client down, but I'm also trying to elevate the product as well. So it's it's not just what I've been offering previously; it's also something that can stretch me creatively and can be a better representation of what I think a moment should be, which is something that I don't think a lot of people a lot of people talk about, especially in like mid-range commercial and corporate photography. It's not really something that gets discussed. People turn up with a standardized kit very often, clients have expectations about what you'll arrive with and all this kind of stuff. so it is a bit of a luxury to be able to turn up with kit that isn't normal and use that.
1: What I loved about it was it just felt for me, it was my first experience of having photographs taken like that and like a more sort of professional shoot. Although we ended up having beach barbecues and going to my allotments, <laughs> but it was very, that's how it should be. And it, and that was something I learned from you really in my mind. So I was thinking, all right. Yeah, there's going to be, it's going to be stressful actually for me being quite self conscious, but actually. We were walking along together and my job was to chat and to do, to be me and your job was to capture it. And, and I, yeah, I really was grateful for that experience with you because it just not only educated me about the sort of personal branding process, but really showed me actually that this, this honesty is possible in in photography. It doesn't have to be this kind of, yeah, very complicated process. If you know your craft, if you know what you're aiming for, if you understand your equipment, if you really know how to use the tools in your toolbox.
0: True. That is true. But actually, I think it's a brand thing too, because you've got to think about the person you're working for. If I took the approach I took for your shoot with an aerospace company, which I worked for in the past, it doesn't work. Because their brand isn't about carefree, easy, and like real. Their brand is like, this paint will never change color in a million years. It has these thermal properties. And those two brand stories are different. I think it's important to remember that because when you're a photographer, a lot of people view it through the lens of, oh, this is how I do things, which is fine and actually laudable because you need to have a stamp on things. But the broader your scope of work, as in the broader the range of clients that you work with, the more flexible you need to be. And that's where the skill comes in. Because I'd worked with you at this point, you'd coached me, like we, we had worked together for a period of time, I understood what your business was about. And genuinely, it's about being a real person, living a normal life, but also having a ton of information and being somebody that's visually educated, which I think is fair. So when we took the photographs, the aesthetic of the photographs was important because people would understand that your audience was visually educated, if not a visual professional. And there were consumers of something that was very high quality. And you can sense like a real moment a mile off. And I think that if it had been more formal, it would have been less effective. So there are lots of situations where somebody needs formality to provide structure. If you're an estate agent, sometimes you need that to build trust and respect, but it depends on your brand. And I think that as a photographer, it's our job to understand that. And if you don't to have a conversation with your clients, get a feel for the direction that things should take. And again, this is something that normally on higher end shoots that a company will come to you and say that this is what we want. And very often they've selected you having already gone through that process, but One thing you'll find when working with small to medium enterprise or when you're not working through an agency is that the business owners that you're dealing with don't know these things. So as a photographer, it's your job to bring that experience in to help them to understand that we can tell their brand story in a way that feels correct for their brand. And if that's authenticity, bring less kit, go for a beach barbecue have a chill out with a laptop on your knees because you want to show somebody that you can work from wherever. But if your story is more about definite structures, about history, about heritage, you do that differently. Maybe it does then look like a formal shoot.
1: I used to be an estate agent, Tom. I wonder what the Joe McCarthy estate agency shoot would have been like. I didn't wear shoulder pads because, you know, too young, but I did love that world, actually, that more sort of formal world. Yeah. Interesting that you, I was thinking of a quote, actually. Let me start with that. I saw it the other day and I thought of you because it's Phil Kasker, who, let's face it, was a pretty scary guy, but he says something quite nice. Follow your most intense obsession mercilessly. And I can't help thinking of photographers when we think of that quote because. It's got to be an obsession, right? Without being too basic about it, you're using your eyes all day long and then you're using a piece of equipment to somewhat translate what your eyes and your brain are seeing and understanding. So there's this obsessive nature to your work. Would you agree with that?
0: I think so, but I think there's an obsessive nature to basically everything about me. Like I'm very good at getting obsessed over stuff. I think the thing about the way the the camera modifies your vision as well as an important one too, that part of the reason why I tend to choose cameras with a shell at up the field is because of the dyspraxia we mentioned earlier. I can't cope with too much input. So looking through a viewfinder and only seeing a small amount in focus means that I'm able to more easily relate to what's in front of me. I don't have to see everything. I can just see one thing and that helps a lot.
1: Yeah. And interestingly, with that approach, we were looking at one of your sheets yesterday, right? And with that constrained view, that literally almost like a cropped kind of view, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide in that imagery. You've got to have a clear vision for what you're trying to convey when you're producing work like that. Is that true?
0: Yeah. I think also the light that we get in the UK is, in a way, it's helpful because there's not a lot of it, basically. It's, It's pretty dark most of the time. And there's this, this, the whole, I think it's at three minutes, thir- three minutes, 33 of silence by glass that composed the piece of music that had no, had nothing but rests in it. Essentially, it was a piece of sheet music and the musicians sat down and played nothing.
1: That makes um, me nervous. Even hearing about that makes me kind of wince. I feel nervous with the silence.
0: People get mad at it because they think, oh, how ridiculous they're playing nothing and getting all this applause. But actually the, the point was to make the audience feel uneasy. It was to listen to the way the musicians shifted in their chairs and like interacted, and just to show that music didn't have to be music performance didn't have to be what it had always been. And it's quite a simplistic thing, but the reason I brought it up here in a photography conversation is because I feel like photography is as much about what you obscure as it is what you show. So, for example, the sheet you were talking about was when we I've been doing this week for a Potter, and basically, I recorded stills and video. So there's this really rich audio of him talking, but all the focus is on what he's doing, because that's his focus. And I think sometimes part of the joy of approaching these shoots with a fresh set of eyes and an outside perspective is that you get to be interested in something that this person has been practicing daily for a lifetime. Like the fact that I got to watch him throw a pot, knowing nothing about pottery, and then look back at those images and only focus on the pot that he was throwing and not have to focus on the person behind it at the same time, felt like a privilege. And later, once I'd seen the work, I could then look at the person. And later in the shoot, we went and took some portraits in his environment and some outside of his environment that felt like his brand. But it meant the focus of the job was on the process of creating, not on the product, not on the person but on the craft and that was important for me because I feel like a lot of the time we try and hide that we try and hide this the messy process of making something and I think that there's such beauty in finding people that have gone through the process of learning how to make something beautiful and seeing how messy it is to make it
1: yeah and that's the storytelling part too, right? How did you get to this point? Let me tell you. That's that part of creating, isn't it? That you're right. I think sometimes, particularly on social media, people struggle to really understand the value of that. And it's it can feel a little bit, ta-da, this is the finished product. And actually, in a similar way, I feel like that's what you're doing with the way that you're sharing your work at the moment, Tom, where it's your work being the podcast workflow, all the other kind of things that you're doing, I really feel like the lids coming off what you're doing, and you're you're inviting us really to see underneath things, and that that feels from an observer that's really exciting to see, and it feels like a treat to get to the behind the scenes. So obviously we work together pretty much every day, right? We we check in with each other, but for those who don't have such close contact with you, is that something you're enjoying doing? Will they sense that from you that you quite like sharing? What's going on in your business?
0: Doing this for other people has helped me to realise how hard it is. Um because I, I want to share with people, but the process of making that thing that you share is actually quite time consuming. Like this podcast takes a huge amount of time. Like it's pretty much one or two days a week that I'm spending Recording, arranging and producing, just all that stuff, like editing it. And I love doing it because it's an opportunity to elevate somebody else. Like the way that I make myself do it is that this is to help somebody else. This is to give, to share information or whatever, but there is an art to it. So the thing that I'm enjoying about doing this for other people so much is being able to focus 100% on just the observation, the preparation and then production of these beautiful things that will show somebody else what their life is like. So it's not that I don't appreciate the value of it. It's more that I don't know how to do the things that I'm doing and tell a high-quality story the way I'd want to tell it at the same time because when I'm doing it for other people, it takes 100% of my attention. So it's hard. And I also think that documenting something can change the dynamic unless you're very careful about how you do something. So if I turned up to a shoot and there's me and a documentary team covering me, it would be weird Unless I find the right client, unless you tell the story in the right way. And I think I'm aware that it needs to happen at some point because otherwise people will never know. And like this podcast isn't an effort in that regard. I'm trying to be as, as open and honest and expansive as I can and let you into the process because it is messy but I don't really always have the perfect tools to do it while I'm also making something because I'm focused on what I'm making.
1: I wonder if this is what Kafka was hinting at about following your most intense obsessions mercilessly. That does require editing. It does require picking and cheesing, like we were saying earlier. And again, that's the skill of the craftsperson, isn't it? To glance at that toolbox and think, yeah, that's the thing. The other day, as you know, Tom, we're renovating a new little home. And my husband, Ben, is very skilled at building and carpentry and has the most beautiful tools going back years and years and years. He was out. And I thought, do you know, I'll just take, I'll just take that saw and I'll just start to attack the staircase that we're taking down. And I broke the saw. And when I spoke to Ben, when he came in, he said, what else would you choose out for that job? And I said, well, that's the only one lying around. And that's the problem. That is the problem with our businesses, sometimes our creative businesses. We want to get the job done. We're obsessing about it mercilessly, but we pick the wrong tool. And there are consequences in my case. Ben said he'd had that for something crazy like 25 years. So there was sadness (laughs) and remorse. It is true in our businesses, isn't it? We need to just be selective and that takes time. And that's what I see in your business from taking a really wise approach in my view of being selective about the kinds of work the kinds of products you're creating the kind of work that you're putting out there and then the kind of people that you're connecting with.
0: I also think that there's kind of an ulterior motive to some of this too because in your situation you're in a room the saw's in front of you the problem is with a lot of of businesses especially ones where there's like high ticket also consumer products being used, like cameras, is that there are companies that will put the wrong tool right next to the correct one and continue to pile them up until eventually you have 15 different tools that all look ostensibly the same, but only one of them is correct. And there's a lot of marketing that goes into making us feel like the tools that we've selected aren't the correct ones. And sometimes they aren't. Sometimes they aren't. Like if I stuck with a kit that I'd started out in this business with, I'd never be doing video right now because those cameras couldn't do video. I wouldn't be able to do this entire new method of communication. But simple things like this little microphone here it is made by Sony. These are really popular if you're a wedding videographer, That the TX650s. This is a dictaphone. It was meant for business meetings. You put it in your pocket and you talk and it records everything. It is incredible for vocals. I cannot tell you how many people have got overly complicated solutions on how to do this. Like when you clip it on, you see a tiny amount, like tiny little amount. Like if you're looking at the video right now, there's a clip. It looks like I've got a paper clip in my shirt, essentially. And it's perfect. It sounds great. And if you don't need to conceal a microphone, this is about as good as it gets. And they've discontinued them and reissued them because they were so popular now. But there are a million microphones and somebody can say, oh, you need a dedicated sound recorder, or you need a shotgun microphone, or you need this and you need that. And maybe you do. But it depends on what you're doing. So for me, as a photographer that understands the value of video, this is perfect because it, it lets me talk to somebody and hear it later. This is a transformative and magical tool because of how simple it is. I can clip it on, press record, and forget that it exists. And yet, there's an entire industry invested in me no longer using this thing that made my life easier because there's a new one. There's something more powerful. And for me as a basically as an obsessive, somebody that's, that needs to know the things, the ins and outs of it to understand why it might be better. That leads me down to all sorts of rabbit holes. So you can end up spending more time trying to understand the alternative than just realizing the value of what you've got. And for me, it's a microphone because I hate audio. I hate learning about it. I love listening to it. I love it sounding good, but I hate the process of having to make it sound good. It's painful and it's not rewarding in the way the photography is for me. So when I look at this, what I see now is this is a simplicity tool. This is something that allows me to clip it to a person and hear them speak. Any other microphone is an exercise in quality in an area that I don't think needs more quality than what I'm getting here. And will get in the way of telling the story the way I want to tell it. So when you're looking at anything, equipment, editing, workflow, business, marketing, any of these things... The correct way to weigh those decisions isn't just, is it better? It's, is it going to get me closer to my goal? And usually, the prevailing wisdom in the industry will be geared up to a very specific idea of what success should be. And you mentioned before about email marketing, so let's broaden it back out again. I spent the first three months of this year having an argument with myself as to whether or not I should have a mailing list that I should be sending out emails to every week. And then I realized that I hate reading emails.
1: And oh, we laughed, didn't we? Oh, we laughed because there were some very well-written emails. But yeah, is that how you want to communicate with people? No, not really.
0: Exactly. So and stepping away from something like email marketing is a big decision. So you can't just not do it. There has to be something else that kind of picks up that slack. So if any of you are wondering why I've got time to do this podcast... Is because I'm not currently bombarding your inboxes with emails. So all I can say to you is that if you like this, please share it because this is like my only marketing right now.
1: <laughs> it is. It's such a privilege you know, to run our own businesses in a way that works for us. What a time to be alive! That we can explore creativity, connect with others who are doing the same, who are passionate about it, and. You mentioned something a moment ago about the sort of the messy work. And again, if business can be creative, for me, that's where the kind of the real splashing and splodging is happening in that messy behind the scenes stuff. Let's throw some things around uh, and see see what we're drawn towards. It takes time. It takes time and some determination. But I think you and I are both on the same page where it's balanced by being profitable as well, being a viable idea to pursue. We've got responsibilities. We need to work in a way that's wise, that's circumspect as well as all of that messiness and fun and joy. So it is, it's a really exciting thing to be doing.
0: It's interesting you mentioned that because this was a conversation I was having with that potter that we talked about before. I asked him, there's a lot of people that do pottery that make art pieces essentially that have his skill level. And he said, yeah, I could do that, but I want to be a commercial thrower, which to him meant that he was making something useful. And the point of that was that he wanted his work to be enjoyed by people and not enjoyed by one or two people, but enjoyed by as many people as possible. And he showed me the example of, there's a tradition in some parts of the world where people will, you have one use ceramic cups, they would drink the tea, drink it, and then throw the pot onto the road. And over time that, that pot gets trodden into the road and the clay becomes part of the track. And it's an organic process that was meant to be disposable. And it was meant to be a simple thing enjoyed by as many people as possible. It was like a democratic way of making a craft useful. And the way that he talked about it is he had one of these little cups. I've got a picture of it. I can probably put that in the show notes. He was holding this cup up and showing me how fragile it was and said, the problem is over time, industry has tried to make teacups plastic. And for that community, even though it's a better product and takes less time to produce, that practice that came around it of drinking the tea and throwing it on the ground became destructive because that practice is no longer fit for the product that's being used with it. And he said that there was magic in that. There's something beautiful about being the person that would put the extra effort in to do something transformative to help elevate people's experience and build culture around these things. But the problem is if you're a photographer and you're only thinking about the utility of the moment and not thinking about how it's going to be used and the person on the other end of it, you're the plastic cup. Useful in the moment, not particularly useful afterwards. Without the application and without a client, I I don't enjoy photography as much. Even if I'm taking family pictures, showing those pictures to my family, that's the client feeling for me. It's that feedback saying, yeah, you you understood the assignment. That cycle is important. Photography for me is in the enjoyment of somebody looking at it or in the utility of the image. So like you said, when we do these things, they have to be done sustainably because otherwise you can't keep doing it. Like you can't teach if you don't have a way of feeding your family. I can't dedicate time to the podcast if I'm not making money somewhere else, because I have to sacrifice this free education to make sure we can do those other things. So you're right. It does have to be tempered, but it's with a view to making more. It's with a view to having a cycle that isn't going to damage the ecosystem. It isn't going to damage the industry. It's going to be a virtuous cycle that allows me to keep making good stuff that doesn't necessarily need to last forever but it needs to be beneficial and not harm the industry.
1: And tempering is a great word, right? It's not panicking. It's not following what everyone else is doing because they seem to be having commercial success with it. It's no, just like the potter, just gently mold it, add some water gently. That's a really, really nice approach to running business. So having never hosted a podcast before, I guess this is where we wrap up. Tom, thank you for sharing. I feel like there's quite a few points that you made that I'm going to, write down some really interesting things to think about after our conversation. So thank you for sharing. I really mean it when I say I feel like you're lifting a little little bit on what you're doing. I know it's uncomfortable for the spotlight to be somewhat on you, but don't worry. The audience is friendly and supportive and everyone's proud of you and for the business that you're shaping and you're being genuinely very helpful and providing a valuable service. We know that because of the really beautiful people that you've worked with over the past year or so with workflow and, you know, the comments that are coming back and you're iterating as well, right? But Always shaping it so that it can be of benefit to others. So thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on your podcast. You're a great guest. Come again. (laughs) And thanks everyone for listening. It's been a treat.
0: Next time, Joe, we're going to interview you. For anybody that made it this far, thank you. And if you get a moment, please take your time to rate the podcast and review it on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to it, really. I'm being told that literally Joe's on this podcast largely because she's trying to tell me to do these things, like we actually need reviews. If you've got this far, guys, thank you so much for listening. And we'll catch you again next week.
1: Thanks. Bye-bye.